Hey guys, welcome back to the Man Talks Podcast. My name is Roger Nairn. And I'm Connor Beaton. Today we've got a very special guest, singer-songwriter Dan Mangan. Yeah, so uh, Dan is actually a two-time Juno award-winning and two-time Polaris Music Prize listed musician and songwriter. He lives here in Vancouver, British Columbia with his wife and son and has done some work with uh, Jesse Zubat when he scored Hector and the Search for Happiness, which is an incredible movie. It's a feature film starring Simon Pegg. Dan has also been a contributing writer occasionally for publications such as the Huffington Post, Huffington Post Canada, and The Guardian. So through many twists, turns, and a good deal of fortune, Mangan's primary project has come to be known as Dan Mangan and Blacksmith. And the ensemble recently released their fourth LP, Club Meds, to much critical acclaim. Club Meds is the fourth LP offering from Dan Mangan and the first under the moniker Dan Mangan and Blacksmith. The new namesake is timely as this album is indicative of a new beginning of sorts. This interview touches on all sorts of great topics, including creativity, masculinity, leadership, and of course, the music business. So without further ado, Dan Mangan. Uh, well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the Man Talks podcast. We really appreciate you coming down this morning. No yeah. problem. Before we get started, um, just wanted to build a little context for the listeners out there. I wonder if you can give us an idea of what it is that you do. Um, I talk <laughs> and or make noises into microphones like this. Um, Walk I'm, amongst the room if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Really use the space. Really use yeah, the space. Yeah. Feel the space. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a musician and a songwriter and uh, a dad and a husband and I live in Vancouver. And uh, what else do I do? I don't know. I do a little bit of writing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So all those things together, what would you say is your, your driver these days? What's your, what's your why? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think most musicians or people in the arts have a sort of, you know, in order to have achieved any success at all, had to at some point have the like uh, wild abandon to be okay with being poor forever. And it's sort of like, that's why you're doing it. It's because you don't care if it's, you know, if you make money or not, you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Um, you know, a sort of internal drive to, to express something or to say something. Um, and then, you know, you spend your twenties sleeping on couches and, um, sort of spontaneously touring around wherever we'll have you making no money, being totally poor. And then if you have a kid or if you start a family of some kind and you're in your thirties, things start to feel, you know, you get that tinge of like, okay, well, what am I? What am I, what am I doing here in terms of being able to support a family and, you know, have a, a meaningful, thoughtful, interesting life. And, uh, so I think that now there's like, you know, a more, more of a focus on a work life balance than I used to have. I think it used to just be all music all the time. That's what I was interested in. That's what I was doing. Um, and now it's interesting because I want to be around my kid as much as possible and so that means that I have to be much more delegating with my time. And then what you don't want is for the music to suffer because of it. You want to, you want the music to be stronger than ever. And there's this idea that, you know, once you have a family, well, then you have to really get serious and get a real job or something like that. I think that's bullshit. I think, you know, you can tell your kid, you could be, you know, the classic, you can be a cowboy or an astronaut or, you know, an astrophysicist if you want. 
And I think you can tell them all those things, but they won't believe you unless you show them that they can be whatever they want to be. And the only way you can show them that they can be whatever they want to be is if you are what you want to be. Uh, and then they will believe it because their example of an adult will be someone who actually goes out into the world and does interesting things instead of their example of an adult being someone who makes some sandwiches and then watches TV at night. And it's, I think it's really important that kids see in their parents, you know, dynamic, interactive citizens of the world, um, because then they will, they will feel like that's expected of them when they get older. Very cool. Uh, I've always found it interesting when parents, when parents are telling their kids one thing, but have totally given up on the thing that they wanted, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, like I, I totally, I went to music school or I went to art school. Or I always wanted to be a dancer. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, well, why don't you? Oh, well, because, you know, life. And it's like, no, I, no, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, what, yeah. like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. So basically, like, you sold out on your dreams so that you could raise a family, but then you're telling your kids to follow their dreams. Like, it's, 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 it's do as such I say, a, not as I do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's such a catch 22. I've always found it so fascinating, but, um, maybe, maybe give us a, our listeners a little bit of insight, like what style of music you do, um, for the ones that, that maybe haven't like gone and checked out your music before. Give them, give them some incentive to go check it out. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> how's us, that for a sales pitch? Uh, <laughs> give, us, sure. give us your, give us your 30 second elevator pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking. Well, I'm just joking. I, st I started making music in the, you know, very kind of singer songwriter folky realm, playing open mics and songwriter sessions and stuff like that. And I eventually kind of started forming a band around myself and, I noticed back, I, I put out a record in 2009 that started to get some good attention called Nice, Nice, Very Nice. And around that time, um, I started to kind of feel like there was this box forming of what indie music felt like and was. And so I really looked to the sort of experimental scene in Vancouver. There's a huge, people don't actually realize it. There is an incredible underground experimental music scene in Vancouver, um, coming from the sort of avant-garde jazz world and it's happening in all kinds of cool little half legal venues. And, you know, um, there's just a real cross pollination between local musicians and international musicians, largely because the Vancouver jazz festival, um, has been a, a pretty daring pursuit for a long time and has really embraced really kind of out there musicians. And so I kind of started to tap into that world, not as a player myself in the jazz world, but to sort of try and surround myself with people from that world because I was just very impressed with them um, creatively. And so now the, the it, you know, what's gone from Dan Mangan being me to Dan Mangan being me surrounded by a bunch of people to now being Dan Mangan and Blacksmith, which is sort of like an ensemble. It's me, uh, Kenton Lowen on drums, Gordon Gardina on guitar, John Walsh on bass, and then we have a couple other players, uh, J.P. Carter, Jesse Zubat, Tyson Naylor. And um, it's become a really interesting mix of, of diverse things. There's a little bit of definitely rock in there, you know, some sort of kind of radio heady electric kind of rock at times. And then at other times it, it gets a little bit more improvisational and a little bit more, um, sort of experimental. And I don't want to use the word jam me cause that's not, I think jam band brings a whole other connotation and that's not what it Fish. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know, I don't even want to get down on that. I don't even think it's bad or anything like that, but I just, um, I, it's not really what I'm talking about when I say experimental or, or even improvisational. Cool. 
Very cool. Very cool. So, you know, the I'm sure all of our listeners are like wondering the one question that everybody wants to ask, which is, is the life of a rock star really like what we all think it is? No, not at all. <laughs> um, also, yeah, I mean, I think rock star is the perfect word to describe everything that it isn't. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like even the term rock star, I've always had a weird thing about that because it describes a perceived result of the work without any description or or like investment in what created the work to get there in the first place it's this idea that once you're a rock star it's just like champagne and bitches and like you know you can do whatever you want and people have to deal with you and it's like this weird life of glamour that involves like narcissistic consumption um but it, it describes nothing about like you know the fact of working hard at being good at music or, or writing or spending decades touring impoverished around the world to try and get people to listen to you. But do, you do you think that that whole labeling is something that a lot of artists, you know, uh, have to deal with, not, not just rock stars? I mean, I'm thinking of... Well, to be honest, I think, I think it separates people from the responsibility of having to do anything. It's sort of to say someone is a rock star, it simultaneously, like, puts them up on a pedestal where it's like, well, they're special... So they're not human. So if I don't feel special, I get to blame the fact that they're special and I'm not. And that's why I'm not doing all the things I want to do. Yeah. So it's sort of like a rationalization for not accomplish, you know, not doing the things that drive you because you put someone else on a pedestal. It also sort of puts them down and says like, oh, they're like, they have, they, you know, they're just like a man child or they're a grown up kid or whatever. And I don't mean to, I'm not sorry. The, the prodigies. Yeah. It's, it's like, I think, you know, you have to realize Neil Young and Paul Simon and um, Tom Waits, these are people like these are real. Nick Cave is a person. He, you know, he gets up and he takes a shit and he, makes breakfast for his kids and then he goes to the studio and he starts working. So it's, um, I think that, I think it's really important to remember that. I mean, especially when I was starting out, I remember that was like a really big motivator for me. It was to think about these icons, these people that I respected so much and knowing that at one point they were the goofy pimply kid in school, you know, <laughs> that, that helped me cause I was the goofy kid, pimply kid in school. And so to think like, Oh, well, you know, they worked really hard at something and they got good at it. And, you know, at this, this point you ask about lifestyle. I mean, I'm pushing a stroller most days. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, there was a time when I was in a bar five nights a week in this city and I felt like I really had a good kind of hold on the scene. But uh, I feel, I'm, I mean, I, th I think it happens naturally, but I, there's a whole generation of bands in the city that I don't even know about because I'm at home watching like Orange is the New Black or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's so badass. <laughs> so badass. So gangster. So gangster. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Part of it is sort of, I think that a lot of people when they have kids, there's this process of like, whoa, I don't have a nightlife anymore. And whoa, this changes like, you know, I don't have as much freedom and I can't do, I can't just like go out on a whim for a beer at 6 p.m. with my friend. And you're like, oh man, that sucks. My whole life is coming to a crashing halt. And then you sort of like, oh, but it's okay. Because you have this other thing that's really amazing. And it, the thing is, I know what it's like to go out and get fucked up. I've done that before. Um, and I know what it's like to just party all the time. I've done that before. But what I didn't know about was, you know, what it feels like to have a kid and tap into that whole world. So it's like, you know, you're sacrificing this thing that you know exactly what results you're going to get out of it 
for this other thing, which is harder and more limiting. And, but it, you know, it's a whole new experience that, that, you know, I'm, you kind of have to just be open to. Hmm. So what, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you've ever gone through in, in your life and, and sort of how did that impact you? Hmm. Big challenges. Well, uh, our son Jude was, um, uh, two weeks early or no, sorry, not two weeks, seven weeks early. So two months early almost. And so, uh, first of all, that's like a big surprise, right? When they come that early, you're not prepared for it. You don't, have, you know, the baby room isn't set up kind of thing. Plus it's also your first. And so yeah. you don't even know what to expect in the first place. Yeah. I mean, even a full term baby is going to, you know, turn your life upside down. So a baby that has to spend two weeks in the, in the nursery at the hospital is, that was crazy. I mean, we were spending 12 to 16 hours a day at the hospital. And what's crazy about that is that, you know, it's hard. Um, and our son, our son was perfectly healthy in the long run. It's just that he was small and needed some, you know, some, some extra TLC from the, uh, from the cooker, you know, the incubator and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, in the end, you know, he's, he's, he's barely had a cold in his life. He's a very, very healthy, very strong. You know, and I just saw, kid. I just saw pictures of him. He's absolutely gorgeous. And he's, yeah. he's, he's a, he's a nut. He's going to be a looker. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, but, um, so, I mean, that was intense, but it's all, it was also amazing to be in the hospital and be around really sick kids, like babies that were born at one pound, you know, at like, you know, 20, 28 weeks old or something in gestation or, or being, or, or going and seeing kids with like shaved heads, you know, and, and what that entails and the look on their parents' faces as they're wandering. The, it's like, that was a really sobering time. Cause you know, say, you know, you can't spend too much time licking your own wounds cause you're looking around and seeing like all these wounds that are a little bit more deep and intense. And, um, that was a very trying time, you know, like to sort of enter a parenthood through this unusual portal. Um, it was interesting though, cause when you're in the NICU, there's all these babies and they're all like tiny and they're all kind of like trying to do, you know, trying to get, to the next step, you know, you're jumping over these hurdles, trying to get healthy and get strong. And, uh, there's all these parents there and you see the, see all these parents in there every day. And it's this great equalizer. It's sort of like being in a sauna. Like, you know, if you're in a sauna and everyone's naked, like there's no power in the room. Like there's, there's no power struggle in the room. If everyone's naked, it's sort of like this equalizer across the board. Um, it's the same thing in there. Everyone's going through the same experience and it doesn't matter if you're like some massive business conglomerate or like just a dude who is barely employed. Uh, it's like everyone's kind of equal in there and everyone's supportive of each other and everyone's just trying to like get their kids healthy. So it's sort of, it's amazing what that does. You know, you could be politically far left or far right. It doesn't matter when you're in there, everyone's sort of in it together. And I think that's a good lesson in terms of you know, people with differing opinions on the world and different ideologies politically and stuff is that like everybody, everybody thinks what they're, what they're doing is going to make their life better for their kids. And that's sort of like the driving force of so many intentions in the world. It's like, well, I want the world to be good for my kid or something like that. And you know, the heart of it, that's what everybody wants. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting like that. I think we need more spaces like that. It's, it's funny that that space has just kind of created itself, right? Where everybody checks their shit. We should have door. mandatory nudity. You yeah. Know? I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's the, uh, isn't there like the, the naked bike riding? Like once a, there's, yeah. a, there's a day every, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it's just, 
the naked bike rider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just like it's you hard, just so hard to see them naked. when they're going by through the binoculars because it's just like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you gotta just get move so fast. You gotta get out of the bushes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In terms of, uh, I, I didn't realize that it, you're only supposed to be naked if you're on the bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. You just stand in there on the yeah. sidewalk <laughs> watching. Yeah. Um, Same goes for the library. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wanted to to back it up and talk about the music industry uh, a little bit and, and maybe some of the challenges that that you face there and just in in terms of the you know, being an artist, like I, I went through the music industry from a very different route. Like I, I was a classical musician uh-huh. and that's, I mean, it's a very, it's very, very different. Right. Um, but some of those challenges are still the same. Like you talked about touring and, you know, being a, being the quote unquote starving artist. Right. Uh-huh. Um, I, I was never really starving, but I was definitely broke, uh-huh. um, you know, eating, eating mac and cheese and, and hot dogs Mr. and Mr. Noodles and shit like that. Right. Just to, just to kind of like get by. But what's your, what's your journey been like there? Like you talked about playing, you know, in, in bars five nights a week and, and, you know, touring and what's been some of the major challenges and what's actually kept you going. Cause I think a lot of people kind of get to a point and they're like, nah, this isn't, this isn't worth it anymore. So what's yeah. been like the, that, that driving factor that's actually kept you going to the point where you broke through that, that sort of barrier that most people bump up against before, mm-hmm. before hitting the 10,000 hours and hitting success. I, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think as you progress, no matter where you are on the journey, you're always looking way ahead and wishing that's where you were. Right. So, you know, even at, at this point in my career, we've been very, very fortunate. We've won Juno's, you know, we, we've sold out big, huge theaters and, you know, we sold out Massey hall, things like that. We've had, we have these sort of benchmark accomplishments. You, you've, you just recently scored the soundtrack to, uh, to an amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah. I worked on a, a soundtrack for a Simon Pegg film a couple of years back. That was a really amazing process and huge learning process curve and really exciting. So yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, we have at this point, like a, a career in music that many people would be envious of. And, uh, so it's, it's the balance between appreciating all of those little steps along the way and also maintaining an appetite. Um, like I, I want, I want more, I want bigger, you know, that's just the, the nature of it. And I don't mean that in a sort of vanity sense. I mean that in a sense of, I want to make better music. I want to have the most incredible body of work possible. I want to, you know, we played a big venues in Canada. Well, I want to play big venues in the States. You know, I want to, I want, I want, the, I want it all kind of thing. And, he, and it's, it's, it's constantly balancing, you know, those two things. And I, I think that there is like a healthy sense of ego and an unhealthy sense of ego. And, um, you know, having an appetite to, to force yourself to keep working and do the hard work, keep reinvesting in the creative side and keep getting better. That's an important thing. I can imagine also like staying happy is staying important. Happy I mean, you can be, balance. you can be doing those big venues and you can be doing all the, the, the amazing things that you want to do, but if you're not happy. Yeah. If you're not, well, and if you're not feeling good about what you, creatively, what you're doing, I think, I think if you write uh, a terrible, like kitschy pop song and it becomes massively successful and all of a sudden you're super famous, you hate your fans because you think they're idiots because you don't like what, what they like. So I, that's a dangerous path. Um, you know, you don't want to do that. But, um, kind of getting back to your question along the way, I mean, I, I really started on the DIY thing. I, um, I took any gig that would have me, I played coffee shops, I booked my own tours. Um, you know, I was sending it to sending my music to labels and whoever would listen, um, and slowly kind of building a team, you know, and, and it, it was interesting because 
right as the train started moving with enough momentum that I didn't really need the team anymore, or I didn't, not that I didn't need a team. I, I was sort of, I was on a trajectory where I was all of a sudden paying the bills with music and I had worked, you know, serving jobs my entire adult life. And, and I quit my serving job and I was surviving on music alone. And it was interesting because that was a real sort of mental milestone to be like, okay, here I'm doing it. Like I'm a musician. This is, I'm a career musician for now, unless it all comes to a halt. And right around that time is when a management company and a new label and everyone and a big agent all got really interested. And so there was a moment where I was like, hold on, like I'm white knuckling the wheel here. I am, I am holding on with dear life to the wheel and I'm steering everything and I'm making just enough money. And all you want to cut of that? Like, and so, you know, the whole, the whole idea behind having a bigger team is yeah, you slice up the pie, but the pie gets bigger. And, and I'm, I'm currently talking about, you know, money and like subsistence and stuff like that. I mean, that is certainly not why you get into, I mean, anyone, you know, anyone who gets into music is like, they're not in it for the bucks because, you know, very, very, very few people actually make bucks. Um, and you know, you have to be willing to do it for nothing in order to make any bucks at all. So, uh, but I'm, but I am talking about that because it's kind of along the lines of what you're asking. And so you know, luckily that sort of happened is that like, as soon as I had a team, it was, we were able to kind of combine the momentum that I had going in. But I say, I, I say a, a handful of things. I get, I get a lot of like Facebook messages and emails from young bands saying like, you know, what advice do you have? Um, we're, we're, we're just getting going and, um, you know, we, we want to do this. And I think secretly when someone writes an email like that, what they're hoping someone will say is, oh, well, I love your music and I'm going to take you on tour with me and we're going to do this and I'm going to help your career. But what I always write back is surround yourself with people who make you feel like things are possible. Always be writing, sort of like, you know, always have an ongoing dialogue in your head of, of new material and new thoughts and new ideas. Never assume that you're as good as you're going to be. So never, never get lazy, basically. You know, just always keep trying to get better at what you're doing. Because as soon as you start, as soon as you think, oh, you figured it out and you know how to make great music and you're set is when you start getting worse at it. Um, and you stop listening to, to the other things around you that are inspiring you, et cetera. Um, buy a van, simple, like tangible things. Like if, you know, there are certain elements of a team in a musician's life that are like equity team. And then there's like hired team. So your manager is like a wife or a husband. It's like a spouse in that you're going to talk with them every day. And if you don't like them, that's not going to work. And they have to believe in you enough that if they're not making money, they still are, are pushing you. So it's like a manager is sort of like a, you know, that's a deep relationship. And often people will go around and be like, Oh, we, well, you know, we just want a manager. And I was like, well, that's like walking down the street. Right. And like, Does anyone want to marry me? Like, <laughs> looking for a wife here, yeah. or, you know, which is not exactly I'm a what, catch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> um, you know, it, which is not exactly the best way to attract a, a wife or, or be the kind of wife that you might want to have, you know, managers should come to bands. Managers should find a band and be like, I believe in this band. I want to, I want to, I want to work with this band. But then there are other parts of your team, like a publicist, which is a hired gun bassist and publicists work for dozens and dozens and dozens of bands. They kind of take whatever works, come to them. If they're a good publicist, they can be choosy and only pick the bands that they want. But they're sort of, 
you know, you still hire them for a campaign. And then when that campaign's over, it's like hiring a, an ad agency right. or something, right? So in that sense, if you have any disposable money, I always say buy a van so you can tour and hire a publicist. And because uh, a publicist can get you a little bit of attention. And once you have a little bit of attention, that they can help turn that into a lot of attention if, if what you're doing is interesting. So that's you know, the simplest, uh, advice that I always give to young, young musicians is just, well, and, and do it like play a thousand gigs and then come back and talk to me. Chances are you'll be in a different place. You and, and you just, you said a little while ago that you got to just keep writing. You got to get up every day and, and write. Um, what is, what does that process look like for you? And, and, and how is that creation process different than anybody I'm else? Or I'm really slow. I mean, maybe that's why I'm always writing is because if I, I, I'm just terribly slow at it. So if I didn't, you know, I would just never write anything. I, I feel like a bit of a sponge in that if I'm, you know, you can only add more water to a sponge if it's been drained kind of thing, you know, and you kind of, you get capped. Um, and likewise, if your sponge is dry, you can't wring it out, you can't create. So you have to like wetten it up a little bit with, uh, with the world. And that I always find when I'm reading books, when I'm seeing theater, when I'm, you know, maybe going to museums or going to dance or, you know, whatever, if I'm sort of experiencing a lot of art and creativity in life, then I'm much more inspired to write myself. You know, if I'm just sort of like in robot mode where I'm emptying the dishwasher and taking care of menial tasks and just sort of going through the motions of life, much less likely to feel inspired. And, and how do you do that when you, when you live such a busy life and you're always on the road and, and do you, do you literally carve out time to have to, to do that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, we have, <laughs> we have a shared iCal and I basically just, you know, put in as many times as I think I can get away with it. And, you know, Dan studio day, you know, right. and then I, and then even if I'm not in the studio all day, it's sort of like, my wife knows, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on my own that day. So with the kid, um, and do you know when you're not being inspired or when there, when there's a lack of, yeah, uh, I guess sort of ideas or, or thoughts or just the sponge is dry. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. What and does I, that, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, it, I think it just feels like being asleep, you know, like it feels like you're sort of half awake all the time. And when you're, when I'm really, I think like when it, when I was writing this last record club meds, there were times when I was like so mentally engaged with a particular stream of thought. And I was so open to like various energy streams in the world and, you know, reading things online or reading things in newspapers and reading books and watching films and seeing how it was all so connected. You know what I mean? It's like when you're really turned on, you're, you're witnessing how, you know, the, the coiling of the cord of the cables on the table here are sort of like this other thing that's going on in the world right. right now. And it's like, you start to see how everything is totally entwined and connected. And that helps you sort of open up these like little hidden truths. And for me, lyrically, that's, that's like, that's the goal is to sort of like unlock little truths to sort of say, here's a something that I've witnessed or experienced about the world, throw that smoke signal in the air and someone will see it and they will get it and they'll be like, fucking A, man, that's exactly what I've always thought. I've never heard it articulated in that way. And then both of you feel less cosmically alone. You know, there's sort of like that existential loneliness is, is easier to bear for both of you because there is a common understanding. Both of you feel understood. Both of you feel sort of 
that someone else gets you in the world, you know? And that, you know, I think being a, an artist is just about creating that feeling over and over and over again. You just, you get addicted to that feeling of connection. And like, you know, I've played gigs to thousands of people where I didn't feel very good about the gig or I didn't feel very turned on. I didn't feel like I really gotten unconscious on stage and sunk into what was going on and feeling spontaneous. But there have been times when I've been on stage in front of thousands of people and I feel like invincible and I feel unconscious and simultaneously uber conscious at the same time and spontaneous. And I'm just listening and I'm, you know, able to sort of be like a really authentic version of myself where I'm not thinking about what I'm putting out there. I'm just being a really honest version of myself. And that is like heroin, you know, that's just like the best feeling in the world. And so I think that when, when you heroin is not the best feeling in the world. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, yeah exactly. It's like fentanyl. <laughs> yeah. It can kill you. Uh, yeah. No, I, I am not suggesting people try heroin. I, I would not put that out there. I, I do liken it to what I mean, I've never done heroin, but I would imagine it's sort of like a full body rush of complete euphoria followed by the rest of your life in turmoil, you know, and uh, it, <laughs> I, I like to think that art can be a conduit to that good feeling and maybe the bad feeling, too. I don't know. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe both. Yeah, I was actually going to say, like, I think one of the things that that guys are often looking for and don't even know it is an avenue or a, or a vehicle to creatively express themselves. To have that sort of tapping into that artistic side of themselves. And I, I think uh, like oftentimes they don't allow themselves to go down that path. Like I remember growing up in Alberta and I, I didn't go and sing until I, I didn't start singing until I was 18. And I didn't start singing until I was 18 because I thought that I was going to get judged pretty hard by my guy friends, right? Whether I was in junior high or high school, um, I thought that that was going to be like this, this like catalyst for people just like shitting all over me. Right. So I was like, I'm not going to go and, and do music because I, you know, I had this perception of it. Well, it requires some vulnerability right. and with vulnerability, totally. you take on all kinds potential. of yeah. potential, potential, yeah. potential, um, attention that maybe, maybe you don't want to have, um, or you do want to have. And, and it was funny because once I started, once I started actually learning more about music and, and started singing, there, there did come that like attention where it was like, what are you doing? Especially because I was singing opera. Like mm -hmm. so many, so many guys in Alberta was just like, why? Like, mm -hmm. what do you, why? I don't understand. Fag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was like, are, are you gay? And it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm not gay. Why do I have to be gay? In I just order got to, pipes, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> why do I have to be gay in order to creatively express myself? And yeah. so it's, it's interesting because there's, there's sort of like that stigma there, but at the same time, it can be one of the like most rewarding and moving and fulfilling times of your life. And even if you don't have this like great career with it, mm -hmm. having this space, whether it's writing or painting or dancing or singing or like whatever it is mm -hmm. can, can just be this like great space where it brings you back into the present moment. I think that that's the most powerful thing is that we're, we're constantly bombarded by like all of these text messages and notifications and all that kind of crap. But to just like put everything aside for half an hour and, and just sing or just jam mm -hmm. or just write or just create, it can really bring you back into this moment. Well, and there's a beauty of doing something gratuitously for only for the purpose of doing it. Right. Yeah. And so I think like if you're singing in the shower, the reason why that feels so good is because 
you're not doing it for, you're not doing it to make money. You're not doing it to impress anyone. You're not, you know, the only reason you're doing it is because it's fun. It's, it's play. Like that's why kids play is because it feels good. And so to do something creative can feel that way. It can feel like, Oh, I'm just tapping into the, you know, I'm just opening up a, a tap for, for me to just do or say whatever feels right. And that, that's very freeing. Also the, the vulnerability thing, like, um, when you see somebody on stage and they are being vulnerable, there's a moment of like secondhand embarrassment where you're sort of like, oh, this could really go wrong. And then when they blow your mind, you're like, oh, I wish I had the balls to be that vulnerable. You know, yeah. it's like it's like you, you spend most of your life kind of assembling your armor to protect yourself from the terrible world out there. Yeah. And then when you see somebody put all that armor down and say, yeah, you can make fun of me, but watch this. And then it's like, oh my God, everyone in the room goes, oh, and if won't, well, they're special. They, they, you know, they, they didn't have to work for that. They're, they just, they're just able to do that. And the truth is you had to do some serious emotional work to have the confidence to be that vulnerable and the humility to be that vulnerable. And that does not happen overnight. That does not, I mean, maybe some people have slight, you know, natural inclination to right. being okay with that. But, um, speaking for myself, like I've had to work very, very, very hard to not give a shit. And that's, that's just, that's a, that seems like, like a paradox, you know, to, to work hard at not giving a shit. But, but does that just come from confidence or does that come, is that an actual learned skill of, of being able to, you know, uh, cast aside what other, what others think of you and, and not let that get to you? I wouldn't use the word skill, but I would use, I don't know. I, I would use the word like, development you know it's sort of i mean there's a reason why you have to go and sit without talking for 12 years before you can be you know a particular kind of zen master right so it's like you gotta you gotta sit alone with your thoughts and be okay with yourself and most of us have to medicate to make that work so how do you do that without medicating especially in this day yeah how do you do it without booze how do you do it without drugs how do you do it without even, I don't know, coffee, like, you know, like, like all of the things that distract us, like they're talking about the ritual of getting a coffee is more addictive than the actual coffee or the ritual of smoking is more addictive than the nicotine. And so part of that is because it, you know, it gives you a, a, an out, you're in a, an awkward social encounter. Well, I'm going to go have a smoke. You know, it sort of like just gives you an out. It gives you a moment to, to distract yourself from what's going on and, and, and get outside your thoughts. So if, if that's the case, if, if the ritual is, is just as important as the actual event or, or activity itself, when you, when you're creating, how do you, how do you still love the creation process and balance that with actually producing work that you're happy with? I don't always love the creative process. Yeah. <laughs> no, every time I make a record, I go a little bit insane. I think that's a great part though. Like people think that it needs to be fucking sunshine and rainbows. Like mm -hmm. there were times in the practice room where I, uh, I mean, without disclosing too much, but like where I like broke the piano that I was working on. <laughs> You'll be getting a bit. Yeah. So I'm not going to so say where that yeah. piano was. Obviously, Mount, Mount obviously it was in university. <laughs> yeah. Obviously it was in the practice room, <laughs> but you know, like I think, yeah. uh, yeah, fuck. <laughs> Everybody knows where I went to school. Somewhere there's a place called the practice room. Yeah. Go. Yeah. It's on the website. You're yeah. done. But I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's the great thing is that people, people often have this perception that it's, it's like the creative process needs to just be like this perfect, and like 10 out of 10 experience the entire time when there's, there's going to be those days where it's just not flowing. Yeah. 
and and the the great part is that you just get to push through that right and you and and experience and that it. yeah absolutely and i think that's why that's why creative process is so great is because it's it is uh, the like best metaphor for how life actually works mm-hmm. right when you're in the creative process you have these days where shit just sucks and it's just like it's just not working and then you have these other days where everything's flowing mm-hmm. everything's clicking it's easy. yeah it's just easy and and that's that's just how pretty much every like our our lives work is it's just like you these you have these days where everything works everything clicks and if you undertake all of the things in your life to take away those low points yeah. you're going to do, you're going to take away the high points too. Totally. And then you end up in the shit eating middle ground yeah. where everything's mediocre and you're bored with life and you don't like your job and your kids are whiny pieces of shit and you're haven't had sex with your wife in four years, you know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> and then you hate yourself right. yeah. and that sucks. Yeah. So and then you're doing fentanyl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then then we're then, back to the hero conversation. Yeah, then it, so, you know, I think it's important to experience those lows because it allows you the privilege of experiencing those highs too. And, you know, surprising yourself. And that's the cool thing about music is like, you know, I'm not uh, a really fantastic musician. I'm a good writer. I'm a good performer. And I have an ability to connect with people in a public space. But I'm surrounded by really incredible musicians, people who are actually, you know, way beyond my skill set when it comes to their instrument. And so there are moments where I will surprise myself on stage by doing something musically that I'm like, Oh, I didn't know I could do that. You know, and those moments where you're surprising yourself is, is amazing. It's, uh, there's a line in American beauty about that. Or it's a beautiful thing when you realize you can still surprise yourself or something. Um, but I mean, that's, that's such a gift, right? Is to put yourself into a situation where you're slightly outside of your comfort zone and then still succeeding. And then now your comfort zone is that much bigger. Because you you push the boundaries. It's like when you're like 18 or 19, you finish high school, you go backpacking, right? It's what everyone does. Like you go backpacking because you want to find yourself. You want to explore the world and you're fucking sick of what's his face and that girl's, you know, broke up with you. And you're like, I'm getting out of here and I don't want to live with my parents anymore. And I'm going to go live in the hostels for six months. Get yeah, I'm going to go get bed bugs. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to try lots of different things. And, and then you go out there in the world and you show up in somewhere in Europe and you don't know where you're going to stay and you don't know how long you're going to be there for. You have no plan and you don't die. You know, you wake up the next day and you're still not dead. And you're like, Oh my God, like my whole life I was scared of doing anything alone or, and I'm still not dead. This is working. And then you come home six months later and you're like, Oh my God, I'm so realized and I know what the world is and all you people are idiots. And then you get over that hump and then you get back into the whole thing of like, okay, trying to, have any objectivity on your own experiences and be like, okay, well that was a learning experience. And now my next one is to get over myself. And, um, and so like, those are all such important steps. And if your whole scope of the entire world is through your television and you've never left your hometown in your whole life and you're just sitting there and your only idea of what traveling is to, is to go to an all inclusive for your buddy's bachelor party. Like, you don't know what the world is. You might, you know, you might think you went to Mexico. You didn't go to Mexico. Yeah. You went to, but I had like, a burrito. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you went to a place where you were being served by Mexicans, yeah. Yeah. but you were surrounded by other white people from where you're from. That's not, that's not world experience. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's partying in a place that is slightly hotter that's, than where you come from. Yeah. Um, so 
<laughs> you know, you gotta, you have to expand your horizons. You have to go outside of what you know and then feel okay. And that's how you expand where you feel okay. And that's how you learn things. And that's how you, you know, create a, a, a an experience of life where you are not confined by just what you've been told. And I'm sure you probably go through that process musically where you need, you know, you, you, you want to keep expanding. You want to keep, I know you said that you've, you've, you've evolved quite a bit over the years, you know, sty stylistically with your mm -hmm. music. And, and I can imagine it's that getting outside there and seeing what's possible and, and what's, you know, what's mm -hmm. not, not to say that there's an, what, what are the options, but yeah. just kind of what interests you, what. Part of it's just boredom too. Like, you know, if you, if you just do the same shit over and over again, you're right. going to go crazy. So I've often said to journalists and stuff like, I just don't want to make the same record twice. And so with every record that I've made, it's gotten more experimental and more noisy and chaotic and weird. And every time we put out a record, the response we get is, Oh, this is so much weirder than the last one. It's like, well, we have a bit of a, right. we have a bit of a pattern setting, yes, yeah. you know? Yeah. And what I, what, what thing is, is that, our new record got a lot of press saying, oh, this is really weird stuff. But in the scope of what's actually weird stuff in the world, it is pop music. Like, right. <laughs> like let's not, right. you know, like... It, it's, it's weird based on their uh, vision of yeah, uh, what like, your music like, is like selling. Like if, if your understanding of, you know, music is the Bee Gees and Jack Johnson, uh, like then that's, you know, music is in, within a particular kind of box. So, you know... I know a lot of people be like, oh, I listen to everything, man. I listen to Pearl Jam. I listen to Floyd. And it's like, well, those are, you know, those are two rock bands. You know, it's like, you know, if you listen, do you listen, do you listen to any Arabic music? You know, do you listen to any like noise core music? You know, I don't know, like invent a term and it exists. Right. So I think that what we're doing has choruses. It has verses. It has prominent vocals. Therefore it is pop music. There's no way around it. But the but the box that this particular pop music is in has gotten more experimental and, you know, slightly less catering to what is the normal thing that you hear on the radio. But do you yourself need, you know, in your head, do you need to have a clearly defined box? No, 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 no. I mean, ideally, that's the thing is you keep breaking out of whatever box you realize that you're in. I mean, I think that that's human nature, too. As soon as I say... Uh, I mean, you guys are wearing black shirts. I'm wearing a white shirt right now. So you say, oh, you guys are in the black shirts. Oh, you guys always wear black, right? Oh, just black, black wearing guys. And you're like, oh, maybe I want to wear blue, you know? And so I think as soon as you feel like you're inside a box, that's what, it's the first step to breaking out of it. A lot of people don't realize they're inside a box, so they can't break out of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I have felt a box enclosed around me many times and then go, oh, okay, I don't know. Well, what can I do? to push, to push this box away. Um, and also I think about a body of work. That's a really important thing to me. All of my heroes have really terrible records in their, in their library, you know, in their catalog because they tried something and then they tried something else and then they tried a different thing. And I think having the balls to not cater to the people who already like you, but to try and be like, okay, well, let me take you on this ride and let's try this other stuff. I mean, in 1984, Neil Young couldn't get a positive review. You know, it was sort of like, oh, he's over, you know, he's, he's done. Cause he would, he had, he got a name doing the folky stuff and then he tried all this electronic stuff and people hated it. And it was like, you know, unanimously panned by the critics. 
And now he's an icon and people are like, oh yeah, he's, you know, he really, really had such a diverse body of work and that's why I like him. You know, it's like, <laughs> so you have to, you have to not believe the critics. You have to not, you have to listen to your internal clock. You have to listen to what's internally inside of you and you have to trust your gut. Um, and that takes confidence and that takes humility too, to, to, to trust your gut and go with it and not, not be affected by the outside forces. Do you, do you have a, do you have a moment in your career that you trusted your guts and it, and it totally. Well, if you talk to our record label, uh, they would say that our newest record has sold like half of the last one. And so most of that is market decline. You know, if you think about just record sales are down across the board. Um, so, you know, for them, it's not like this newest record is a smashing breakthrough success. Right. Um, for me, creatively, I felt like it was. I feel like I can stand behind this newest record, Club Meds, more so than any record I've ever made. I, I feel like uh, it is a complete thought. Every other record, I felt like if I only had a bit more time, a bit more money, I could have made it better. This record is like, it is what it is. If I put more time into it, I would only be meddling with it. And it's it's good. It's solid. And that's how I feel about it. And so, you know, I've had time. This, this year has been trying in a lot of ways. You know, we... We, we played to about the same amount of people as the last record, maybe slightly less on the last Canadian tour. You know, chalk that up to whatever. Chalk that up to maybe our fan base is getting a little older. Maybe they're starting to have kids. So maybe they're not going out as much or something like that. You know, you could try and rationalize it anyways. Um, we had a little bit less radio play on this record than we did on the last one. Um, so who knows? You know, I, some people would call this a decline in our career, but... I think it was a very, very important step, you know, and I, I think that I want to make 20 records in my year, in my career, and I've only made four. So, you know, I think that this is, uh, it's, you have to, you have to think long-term. And then you called it, you called this album a complete thought. What is that complete thought? Well, it's, it's a missive on the difference between feeling awake and feeling asleep and how, both of those worlds are a little bit necessary for self-preservation. So if you feel completely awake and completely tapped into all things all the time, that's not healthy because you, you know, maybe that's kind of what actual schizophrenia feels like is just to be too aware, you know, so you can't take it and you start getting paranoid because you just feel like all these things are happening all around you. You start to, you just draw so many connections all the time that it's actually unhealthy for your, you know, sort of stability. But if you focus entirely on stability and you minimize all the highs and all the lows and you do everything you can to protect yourself and you feel dead and asleep all the time, that's not good either. And so you kind of need to find your balance of those two worlds where you where you feel okay, but you also feel awake. So I think that's kind of what this record's about. I, I wrote a lot about how this record's about sedation and about like, you know, induced sedation. And that could be medical, that could be like pharmaceuticals, that could be, uh, you know, booze and drugs. It can also just be social sedation, you know, the sort of, you know, kind of social network of delusion that we do to sort of, you know, I feel empty, but as long as all my friends also feel empty, that's okay, right? And this sort of idea that, you know, as long as you're part of the herd, you will be less alone when in fact that doesn't work that way. And, um, you know, to, to sort of sacrifice all, all it's, it's sort of like all the little 
seemingly insignificant sacrifices we make to our sort of internal cloth in order to fit in. And some of those things are healthy and some of those things are unhealthy. So it's just a discussion on all of that. And I, I like the idea of throwing out a lot of questions, not throwing out a lot of solutions or, or sort of assumptive statements of correctness about any of it. You know, I don't, I don't have an answer but I do have a lot of ideas about it and throwing those on the table and letting people draw their own answers is much more powerful than trying to hammer somebody over the head with, with the answer. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, uh, people always need to find the answer themselves anyway, right? Like exactly. you, you can literally beat them with the answer. Mm. Um, but a lot of the times they just, they're just not going to get it because they need, it needs to, they need to internalize it. They yeah. need to internally come up with that answer. And a lot of times asking the right question, asking them uh, the powerful question that they need to hear is, is, is way more powerful mm -hmm. than just giving somebody the answer. Your buddy's in a hard time. He's in a pickle, you know, and you know, he's like, Oh, what should I do, man? And always, or 99% of the time, 1% of the time you should be like, well, this is what you need to do. Cause you're an idiot. But 99% of the time, the thing they need to hear the most is a question. Right, yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I heard an interview the other day uh, with uh, Mavis Staples, mm. you know, the f famous uh, uh, segregationist singer, you know, from the Staples. Staples no matter what. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's a great show. She said, thank you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but she said that these days, you know, you know, the younger singers are afraid to ask those questions and they're afraid to, mm. you know... I, I, I don't want to say make a statement, but they, you know, they're afraid to ask those questions because they're worried about hearing what the answers are. And they're worried that those answers right. are going to turn into backlash and they're thinking about the record label and all that sort of stuff. So I can imagine it must be hard putting those questions out there in a way. Mm. I remember a little while ago, Neil Young saying like, where are the, where are the protest singers? You know, like That's sort of, saying, sort of yeah. feeling like my generation of protest singing has died. There's a couple things about that. A in his day, protest singers were topping the charts. Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, they're not right now. You know, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, uh, Rihanna. Um, none of those people are singing very subversive lyrics. You know, it's pop songs. And so it's not to say that pop music didn't exist back then in a sort of more candy form as well. But it was popular to sing political songs. So I actually think there was, there was a whole cast of musicians who didn't actually feel that political but were writing more politically because it was what was getting all the attention. Now there were also true visionaries, you know, I, Bob Dylan and Neil Young or Joni Mitchell, I, they were, wrote some of the most incredible lyrics and had things to say and they were political. And that's partly why they're so iconic now. Um, and I think a lot of that sort of more hard hitting political writing is going on in the hip hop community. Um, I think there's some amazing lyricism going on in hip hop right now. There's also a lot of crap, but I, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't a slight call to arms for me. Like I, I've always felt like a political person. I've always felt like I had a lot of opinions about the world. Um, but I wouldn't say that my music was always political. I think for a long time it was very charming. Um, uh, maybe had like a bit of wit to it or something, or had an angle on social situations that people were able to connect with. But it's only really on this record where I really challenged myself to, to be more political um, and to, to sort of poke at the nerve of some of these streams of ideas and consciousness in society that people don't like to upset because then they have to, you know, it's like 
you have to question your own biases. It's sort of like it's easy to poke poke at, say, Fox News and say, all these people are idiots, you know. How are they even on TV? The statements that they're making are so outlandishly racist and awful and they're hiding behind these like smoke and mirrors things to get away with it and it's so brutal. And then you have to go, okay, well, that's them, but I can't assume that I don't have any biases. I can't assume that I'm totally on the level and have nothing to work on, you know? So I don't know. I think that you have to be willing to shake up your own core of biases and, and look inside you and be like, okay, well, what have I, what I I have, you know, this term like linchpin on a grenade, right? It's the thing that keeps it from exploding. And so, so many of us have a linchpin in, in all various parts of our personalities where it's like, you know, we can talk about paradigms of, you know, uh, gender roles or, uh, patriotism. I think patriotism is a big linchpin. It's sort of like you have to love your country. If you don't love your country, man, screwed, you know, and part of patriotism is questioning your country and trying to make it better, not blindly loving it. But this linchpin is like this idea that if you pull, we're on a thing called man talks, right? Like gender roles is a huge one where you can be like, okay, well, I just did what I had to do because I'm a man. Had to be, had to do what I had to do. You know, it was the worst thing I ever did. But I had to, I had to do it to be a man, and that's a linchpin. It's like it's this idea that as soon as you pull out, well, well, do you or 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 did you or what does that mean? And as soon as you start questioning these things that you take as given fact, these are the foundational rules of living and existing. And as soon as you pull out that linchpin, the grenade can go off, which is far more dangerous. So you live with this linchpin. You never touch it. It's the one thing you can't touch. It's like you know you have a gra- a grandparent or something that refuses to talk about something, you know, or like, we'll not talk about politics or religion or something like, well, what else is there to talk about really? Right. You know? And it's like, the, because as soon as you pull that linchpin, you don't know where the rest of the evening is going to go. You don't know where that conversation is going to go. That's a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think that goes back to the, like the, the comment that you made. <clears throat> I'm kind of glad that you brought this up, but the comment that you made earlier is like, uh, something around, you know, have a, have a pair of balls, a girl pair of balls, something like that. And, and be that vulnerable. Mm. Because I think that that is in itself pulling the limp, linchpin a little bit because grow a pair of balls doesn't necessarily mean be more vulnerable. Usually what right, it means right, is right. like, you know, grow a pair, just, just man up and just go do it. Yeah. Which usually means shut down emotionally, yeah. push some shit down emotionally and then just go do and do what it. you gotta do. Yeah, yeah, which is funny because do. to me, the most impressive people are always the ones who can get vulnerable, yeah. the ones who are effortlessly cool without trying to be cool. Yes. You know, the, the ones who have done the emotional work to not need to project a certain foray of, of machismo or something like that. Like, like machismo is like the most hollow, useless form of masculinity. Right. <laughs> it actually suggests that there is nothing underneath, you know, and it's all a show. And so when someone is like quiet and, you know, able to articulate themselves in a particular way without putting on a big smoke and mirror show. That's way more impressive. Mm. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, I've always wanted to ask you this, this question. You've, you know, over the years, you've gone from being a soloist to having a band to now, you know, you're now Dan Mangan and Blacksmith. Do you consider yourself the band leader? Do you consider yourself to be um, uh you know, the head of the band? And if so, uh, how have you learned to become a leader over the years? And then how has, has it kind of been thrust on you or do you, did you, uh, 
Did, yeah, you, did I, you see it coming a long way? I don't, I've, I mean, to be honest, I've never really like identified as like a truly alpha person, but I think I might be one by mistake. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like yeah, that I, idea. I think I might be one by mistake. Yeah. Like <laughs> somebody fucked up along the help, way. Help, I think I'm an alpha. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah, like there's, there's a book title in there like help. Yeah. <laughs> well, one time I, I remember saying to my wife, Kirsten, we were talking about like leaders or something like that. And I said something along the line, and I really, truly meant it. I was like, well, I don't really see myself as a leader. And Kirsten was like, are you kidding me? Like, like shut up. Like, and I think that it's true in that I have moments where, like, I've stood in front of thousands of people and had them all watch my hand gestures. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, well, yeah, I guess there is something leading about that. Right. Um, but I've never... I've never thought like, oh, like I'm really the type of guy who gets in there and shows people what to do. Um, first of all, anytime someone uses the frame, I'm, or the phrase, I'm the type of person who blank, 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 <laughs> they're immediately full of shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like if someone is constantly telling you what type of person yeah. they are. I'm the type of person who will always tell you what I, what I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, first of all, if you have to say that, and you can't just show it like it's, you know, it's bullshit. Um, I, 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 that is a funny thing. It's like that phrase. I'm the type of guy who something, 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 which generally means I'm not that type of guy, but I wish so dearly that I was. Um, it's like people who talk, ah, I'm, I'm the type of person who doesn't like any drama in their life. Completely surrounded in yeah, drama yeah. all the time. You just know? immersed in it. Yeah. Oh man, I just want to get rid of this drama. Did you hear about so-and-so? <laughs> you know, um, so uh, I don't know where we're at in the conversation. <laughs> I lost track. Oh, am I? Uh, do, do I feel like a leader? I feel like I'm leading away from this question. Um, I do feel like the band leader in that I write the lyrics and the melodies of the songs, and I bring a lot of the ideas to the floor, and then we flesh them out together um, creatively. That's how I feel. Um, but I also feel like, you know, in a way you kind of have to be the most benevolent dictator that you can be. You have to, when, when people have grievances about what's going on in the band creatively or otherwise, you have to listen and you can't, you can't expect people to blindly follow you and then expect results from people. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to earn respect. You can't demand respect. And, um, and so you have to listen to people and you have to uh, you have to be open to new ideas. And every time someone says something and it causes a knee jerk defensive reaction in you, you have to question why that is. And maybe if there's a nerve that they're striking, you need to work on that nerve. Um, I almost I, I always felt like starting a band was like starting a, a startup. You know, like having a startup where you you bring these people together and they're all really invested in something, and oftentimes they're unconsciously looking to you for that guidance mm -hmm. um and that that can put that can put a lot of pressure on on the on the main person and you know i like i like i like the idea of oh yeah I, this maybe happened by chance because i think a lot of the times most really exceptional leaders even in the business world it's not like they turned 18 went to yale came out of yale and there was like oh, i'm going to go be this amazing leader mm -hmm. like maybe once in a while but for most people that's that's not how it actually went in their mind. It was like, oh, I just want to be really good at this job. Or I really want to be good at marketing or sales or, you know, people development or writing music. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they get put in this situation where they're leading a team of 100 people. 
uh, or they're they're at the front front four of of the band, and, and all of a sudden they have leadership kind of put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's there's a thing about like sort of being put in a situation where you're maybe a little bit unqualified for, and then stepping up to the plate and succeeding yeah. anyways. Yeah. And then people are like, oh, this person can do that, you know? I feel like that's happened over and over and over again. And, and sometimes we didn't step up to the plate. Like, yeah. we've had amazing opportunities, opening spots for big bands or something, and maybe we didn't have a great show. And you're like, oh, man, well, I wasted that opportunity, you know? And you, you have to learn something from that. If you don't, you know, if you're, if you didn't learn anything from that experience, then it's, it's a waste. And that's, that's the vulnerability piece. I think that vulnerability is one of the most underrated components to leadership mm-hmm. because those are the people. And I think you just described it. Those are the people that end up going in to those leadership positions are the ones that were vulnerable enough to say, like, I don't have the answers right now, but I'm just going to go for it. <clears throat> and if it pans out, great. And if it doesn't, I'll learn something from it and be a better person. How time. can you lead people without being a bully? Yeah. You know, like. So often the people who win in politics are the bullies because they have the most, they just have like this, um, sensational amount of, of will and determination to, to power. And so they're willing to do anything that's necessary and they're willing to manipulate or, or, or whatever. Um, and unfortunately the people, you know, every now and then you meet people who with grace at the top, people who have succeeded in amazing things in their lives and you meet them and they're human and they're real and they're very natural and they've done the work. And that is very attractive in, in people, you know, when they can sort of calmly listen to people, they can take feedback, they can assume that maybe they're wrong about something and be like, oh, well, maybe, yeah, let's try it your way. And if it doesn't work, then, you know. But let's give it a real try. Let's just let's not just placate that you want to try it differently, but know that you're going to come back to the way I want you to do it. I have to be willing to be like, okay, well, maybe your way is better. Let's do that. I remember talking. I, I mean, I worked at a restaurant for many years. I remember one time talking to the manager about you know, he was dealing with a, a kid who was like 16 or 17, cleaning the deep fryer or something like that, and. He was, it was like late at night and he's like, okay, well, there's two ways I can go about this. I can go in there and I can show this 16, 17 year old, like how I want them to clean the deep fryer and I can force them to do it exactly the way that I do it. Or I can ask them, what do you think is the best way to get this deep fryer as clean as possible? And then the 16, 17 year old kids can be like, huh, okay, well, I think we should do it this way. And then when they're training the next person, They're going to be like, okay, well, here's the best way to do it. And they're going to care about how clean it is because it's their method that is, you know, sort of controlling how, how, how well this operates, how well, and like asking that question of like, what do you think is the best way to clean this right now is going to bring in, I mean, it might fail. Maybe, maybe you'll walk away and it'll be disgusting and they, they don't care. They're just out back smoking dubs, you know, (laughs) but, but if they're, you know, if they're a person of substance, they will they will put some time into it and they will figure out a great way to do it. And that's delegating. Like that's the best kind of delegating is to actually, you have to be able to ask those questions and trust people with tasks. Um, and then actually being willing to commit to those tasks if they're, if they're good. Cool. Um, so we, we, uh, are going to be wrapping up pretty quick, but we have a couple, a couple last questions. One of them is, uh, an hour flies by, by pretty quick. It's yeah. incredible, but, um, yeah, <laughs> so par- the, par- all of our parkings, right? Yeah. Out, all so. of our parkings. Right um, so the last, one of the last questions that, that we have for you is what do you think that it means to be a man today? 
man. A man. A man. I mean, we've kind of touched a on man. it here and there. And, yeah. And uh, Roger's singing about it now. But we've, you know, we've kind of touched on it here and there, which I think is great. Um, but what do you think it means to be a man? And maybe um, how has that shifted since, since you were a kid? Uh, well, I've told this story before, but a little while ago I was at the playground and uh, my kid was playing and I was like looking at my phone, looking at my emails. And I remember kind of getting like a slightly nasty look from one of the other parents. Like, oh, you're, you're with, at the playground. You're not, you're not experiencing what your kid is doing right now. You're looking at your phone. And I remember kind of thinking, yeah, I am looking at my phone right now, but I'm spending the entire day with my kid. And when I was a kid, I saw my dad for 20 minutes before bed. So eat shit, you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> like, I, I think, I think, you know, the definitions of what's normal as a dad is totally migrated to being less specific about gender roles and things like that. Um, and being a man, I think Dave Grohl, I remember seeing him in an interview once really put it really well, sort of saying that like part of being a really well-rounded man is, is understanding that you have a feminine side, not rejecting the idea that any femininity exists in you and that everything's on a spectrum, you know, it's not black and white, everything's gray. And so, you know, sort of being your most authentic self at whatever point on the spectrum of femininity and masculinity is the most magnetic, attractive and beautiful way that you can be. And so accepting your softer side, embracing it, you know, I don't know. I, I think that, uh, the definition of manliness has changed a lot in the, over this last century. Um, and that has to do with social perception and mores and cultural things. But, um, cool. I yeah. like it. I, I think there's that, that, that certain degree of, um, emotional and social intelligence that are expected of men today. Um, that maybe not that it wasn't expected of men a hundred years ago or 50 mm -hmm. years ago, but I think that the bar has been raised on some of those areas. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's what you're talking about is, is men being able to understand that level of, of feminine energy that resides within them, whether, whether they know it or not, or like it or not, uh, and being able to accept it and work with it. And at the same time, understand that, that it's going to shift here and mm -hmm. there. Right? And like, also, and also knowing that that's okay. It's, it's okay to mm -hmm. acknowledge that feminine energy. Yeah. I remember I got in an argument once, uh, with a guy in his sixties and he was saying, he grew up down in the States somewhere and he was saying, you know, I just really feel for kids these days because when I was, when I was younger, life really was simpler, you know, it really was so simple. And now it's just so complicated with all this technology and I remember thinking, like, was it simple for you as, like, a white kid growing up in the woods? What if you were a black gay person in Mississippi? Was it more simple back then or was it more simple now? Yeah. You know? And life is always complicated. There's no simpler time ever because for every pro of the past, there is an equal con. And the past and the future exist completely in hypothetical terms. The only thing we have is right now. So um, the idea that it's getting better is true. You know, maybe in other ways it's, we're, we're paying for that in other ways. I don't know. But, um, I think that, you know, pros and cons aside, you just have to, it all comes down to vulnerability, it all comes down to, you know, self-acceptance, which can only happen through sitting alone with your thoughts and working through all of the hard ones and getting to the other side of them. Mm. Dan, what sort of a legacy do you want to leave on the world? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Roger. I don't know. 
Um, I want, I want to leave behind, I mean, also with the acceptance that in thousands and thousands of years, none of this means anything, right? So, you know, on the, on a long enough spectrum of time, Napoleon is just dust. And, you know, we don't know, we don't know much about one dinosaur over another dinosaur, right? It's, you know, in, in the long term, right. Why are you going to knock big, Napoleon like that? Big picture, <laughs> like in the biggest picture possible, John Lennon means nothing, right? right? So um, I think that in the short term, in the sort of more tangible spectrum, I just want to leave behind a really incredible body of work that is relevant and challenging and thoughtful and thought-provoking and artful. Um, and I want to... Um, I want to raise really good kids that are in the same vein of, you know, all of those things as the body of work. And, um, I want to make the people in my life feel like life is, is great. And I want them to feel that way, not because they're ignoring the bad stuff, but because they're embracing it and working through it. And I want, uh, the people that I love to feel loved and that they're important and that I think that that's all you really can do, you know, and in a lifetime, it's not that long to work with. Yeah. Right. It's a pretty kick-ass legacy. Yeah. And what's something you're excited about, uh, these days that you've been working on? What do you want to let people know? I'm, uh, I'm working on an EP. We haven't announced it yet. I'm working on an EP of a bunch of songs that, um, a bunch of songs that are actually more stripped down, solo versions of songs from club meds and uh, potentially some covers in there and stuff like that. So, and we're, uh, I'm going to Europe in September uh, as a duo and there may be some more Canadian touring in the fall, um, in a slightly different light than <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to, uh, extrapolate too much. Perfect. That. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, where can people find you online? Dan Mangan Music, uh, or at Dan Mangan Music on whatever social media is your favorite. <laughs> um, and they can obviously find your songs on iTunes, iTunes, and songs, Spotify, song, yeah, all that stuff. All that if, stuff. if if you're in a place where music is digitally digitally aggregated. <laughs> you will find our music. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. I think you shared some really great insight on creativity and art and masculinity and just, just everything. You kind of, you kind of touched on everything. All kinds you're, of fag stuff. You're beautiful, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could have talked about quantum theory in there somewhere. Totally. And if, uh, if, if, if the listeners want to learn more about Dan, definitely check him out online. They can also go to uh, our website at mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, any videos of events which are coming up soon. Connor, is there anything we wanted to be talking yeah, about? Yeah, I think the, the last thing that we want to touch base on uh, really quick, we have a one-day event coming up in November. Uh, the one day is going to be here in Vancouver, uh, November 7th. It's going to be from uh, about 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. and we have some pretty incredible speakers. We have Jay Demerit, the ex-captain of the Whitecaps. We have Brian Scudamore, the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, we also have Daryl Kopke, who's the current CEO of Kit and Ace, works with the works with uh, Chip Wilson and the family. So if you want to learn about business, if you want to grow yourself, grow some relationships, meet some epic people here in Vancouver, definitely come check that out. That is live now on our website, mantalks.com. 
Um, so check that out, and we'll hopefully you see see you there. Awesome, thanks. So thanks so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with an inspiring man. Oh,